Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. I've got a question then, playing absolute devil's advocate here, and we'll get to some of the facts of you know, how many sharks are being killed every year. Why would they not make a better killing machine than what they have? I mean, why is it not the length of Bondi Beach? Why have they made these things so small? Is it an operational thing? I mean, if they're really just trying to kill these things, could they not kill them in a more gruesome, better way? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, Why are they only that small? Why are they designed like that? It's a really good question, and I wish I knew the answer. None of it makes sense. This is the, this is the point. If if your firm position is we'll keep people safe by decimating the shark population, right? Then do a better job of it. You're doing a pretty good job of it, but why not do the whole top to bottom? Why not set the whole thing? Why not make it a kilometer instead of instead of 150 meters? And again, this is where we boil down to the nuts and bolts of the issue. What I'm learning is that would be very expensive to do, right? That would be big nets. That would be expensive. You would, instead of having one contractor who might able to manage all the nets, you would have to have more contractors. You would have to have more equipment. And it starts to get very, very expensive. I firmly believe this program is there for the appearance of doing something and to cover the politicians' backsides if and when there is a shark bite rather than to actually do anything. Because if if you're actually trying to do something, you would go one of two ways. You would modernise the program, you would use modern technologies that are featured in the film that could provide a far greater level of safety than drum lines and shark nets. Alternatively, you would, like you say, do a better job at slaughtering more animals. But again, you know, both of those come with a cost. So I think, I think they're just treading this middle ground of like, we'll just keep doing what we've been doing. It covers our butts. They can blame history. They're like, but we've been doing it since 1937. But we've been doing it since 1962. You know what I mean? They can, they, they can just lean on that messaging. And it's not just, as you've highlighted, it's not just the politicians. It's the media getting on this as well. You know, like I've spent 20 years in, in Australia and, you know, and nine years, shark attack in WA. And then there's boats out there hunting this thing down. And, you know, you, you, you sort of get caught up in it a bit. You're like, oh, buddy, shark, man-eating shark, you know. Like that's the media driving because people want to watch that crap. What was your experience with the media, you know, and, and, and how is your experience today with the media, Lauren, Andre? I mean, are they friendly or, or not friendly? 
Depends who you talk to. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's because, unfortunately, sensationalism sells. And we have this culture worldwide where sharks are this massive, ferocious man-eater out to kill you. And the thing is, ultimately, minds they are an apex predator, but they aren't out to hunt humans. And it's challenging that mentality is the base root of a lot of the problems we face is because people just automatically have this such a strong negative fear towards sharks that gets propelled by media. So they, you know, we have stats about one shark attack can be reported up to like 30 times by media, but sorry, it's not even a shark attack, a shark incident. And when can be things like being bumped by a canoe or a teasing by like a dog, just to kind of say, is this food? No, it's not. And goes away, but it gets blown up in media as this savage attack. Or you'll see these shots of a shark swimming, swimming alongside a surfer and it's the shark stalking the surfer. It's this misrepresentation of animal behavior that is being perpetuated for generations and decades in our society. And it's how do you direct that fear? Because going back to what we're talking about, even if people were to buckle down and say, just kill all the sharks, decimate the sharks and go harder on the culling program, that will protect us. That's being proven in Hawaii that culling programs don't work. If you were to go out hard and to attack sharks and to try and decimate that population, that doesn't reduce the number of incidences that occurs. So it's this kind of two-way street that you're facing with, where you have to come forward and go, we have to live with nature and you have to challenge that mentality. And media has a big part to play because ultimately they're there to get clicks on their views and to yeah, see what sells. Yeah. And so that's then how do you then challenge, okay, the politicians have their sound grabs. Okay, what do we do for ours that directly challenges that one and portrays the right picture? How you got to think always in how can this be portrayed in the other way and how do we prepare to counter that quickly and with authority so that it's good to go and have that kind of preemptive messaging. One bit of messaging I have seen slowly shift through this campaign is not that they still sensationalize any shark incident for sure. Clicks are what they're about, ad dollars are what they're about, they're a business. The one thing I have seen shift is attitudes towards shark nets. So anyone that stood up for shark nets, the media used to attack them. They used to go, you're putting shark lives before human lives, bad activist, bad greenie. That used to be the messaging. It's now completely shifted in terms of just in a short amount of time. In this two years I've been involved, they are now starting to, probably still not to the extent that they should, but they're starting to hold the government to account. They have a better grasp of the facts. They have a better grasp of the science. They, they're starting to go like, hang on, these are really, really harmful and don't work. Like, what are you going to do about it? That I've seen shift. But I think, it ha- yeah, you're right, it has shifted, but I think this movie is going to cause a greater shift. And I think there's two things that you guys have done to the narrative around sharks being these man-eaters or whatever. You go a long way towards dispelling this, this fear of the unknown. You tell this beautiful story and showing imagery and, and telling stories around how these sharks, they're, they're basically just not as bad as everyone thinks. They're like, number one, their their populations are being decimated. I think you say that in 30 years, their populations are down like 90 to 95%, which I found incredible. They're not man-eaters. If there's any sort of shark attacks or incidents, it does seem to be accidental. They're in the water with us all day, every day, but yeah, the, the the number of fatalities and incidents are super, super rare. And I thought I thought you guys did a really good yeah, job yeah. of telling that story. But I guess the other element to this is actually you show a lot of science, and some of the science behind this documentary was for me, for me again that was stunning. The fact that shark populations being declined, I guess the fact that these shark control and I use the term loosely control methods are only in four areas in the planet, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, France, and South Africa. 
the uh, federal government's own inquiry, their Senate inquiry, again, the federal government providing advice to the state government around this, saying these things are useless. If anything, they make things worse and they obviously catch a whole bunch of non-target species. There's a lot of bycatch. But I guess the other thing from my perspective that you guys talked about was the fact that there was a survey done by the Humane Society International, et cetera. They did a, a survey of Queenslanders and showed 71% of Queenslanders actually don't support these legal shark control methods. So the community agree with you already. It just seems to be the politicians that just don't – I just – all the signs – it substantiates these things are a waste of time, in fact, make our beaches more unsafe, but yet these ministers still tiptoe or goose step along to this line of that we have to have these in place. Because this is such an emotive issue, you don't just need a simple majority of community support. It needs to be like overwhelming. Like, and we need to get that 70 number to, to, to be honest, there's also been like quizzes just on the seven Facebook page or on the nine news Facebook page or the 10 that actually show a higher number than that 71%. But anyway, we need to get that number to like 90, 95, like, and get them active and vocal and on the beaches. And obviously that's where, that's where Lauren comes in. But yeah, because it's such an emotive issue. They're not going to move at 70% opposition against this program. They're going to move at 90, 95. Like, I don't know what they need to move. I'll tell you when I find out. One thing that I did find very interesting was also around the Great Barrier Reef and what's going up there. Andre or Lauren, do you want to talk about that side of it and what has gone on in the Great Barrier Reef? Because we're already killing the Great Barrier Reef. The sea's getting warmer, acidity, you name it. And then on top of that, I found this part really, really interesting. So do you want to elaborate on the road? Well, within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, they used to have the drumlines in operation in these killing programs within the marine park itself. So something incredible happened was HSI actually took the Queensland government to court over this. And they found out through the legal proceedings is that their own scientific witness evidence for the Queensland government said that these programs shouldn't be used. And that their final verdict was that the scientific evidence was direct quote overwhelming that these programs are ineffective. And so what they did was they ordered the lethal programs to come out of the marine park. So they pushed them to just along the borders. And they encode this, what they call non-lethal drum lines within, within the marine park, where they had, unless the species is on their target species list, which is a list of 19 shark species, if it's safe for the operators, they will release sharks or animals that they come into contact with on the marine park, unless they're on this target list where they will be euthanized on site. The fun thing about this is that 12 of these 19 species are recognized as threatened with extinction or critically endangered, such as hammerheads, oceanic white tips, and five of them have never officially even been recorded as having bitten a human, such as black tips or big nose or pig eye, sharp tooth or silver tip sharks. So it's what we're having is that you have this on the legal side and the political side, you're having everyone saying, these don't work, get them out of here. And then when you even the legally complying with it, you have these ineffective, quoting non-lethal drumlines still operating in the park. Talk a little bit about how to run a proper non-lethal program in the Great Barrier Reef using drum lines. That would be using smart drum lines. So smart drum lines send a notification to the contractor who should be out on the water ready for a notification and then they come and tag and release the shark. That would be a proper non-lethal program. They don't want to do that. So what they've done to comply or at least argue that they comply with the court order that your program within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park must now be non-lethal. What they've done is they've said, okay, instead of checking a drumline every 48 hours, which used to be the, the cycle for a contractor checking, we will now check it every 24. That's literally all they've done. 
that's the closest they've gone to complying with that court order. And surprise, surprise, not that effective. They're still killing over 70% of catch on their non-lethal drum lines. Sounds pretty lethal to me. But am I missing? Why the hell are we putting these devices near the in the marine park in the first place? <laughs> like, I would have thought a marine park was there for all animals to work together. And why are we doing that to start off with? Marine park is a loose umbrella term anyway. I mean, you've got to think there's commercial fishing in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. There's commercial shark fishing in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. There's culling in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. So a marine park sounds good, but there's still a lot of stuff they allow to happen in there. And in this particular instance, yeah, intentionally culling uh, sharks was one of them. They're now not supposed to. They're now supposed to tag and release. But like I said, the, the numbers do not support that that court order is being followed, not even remotely. Is this bipartisan support politically? Is it on both sides of politics that they support them? So in Queensland, Labor's in power, but LNP don't take a strong position against this at at all as in their position on this is like they're not they're not campaigning on this they're not they're not having election promises around this saying we'll modernize the shark control program we'll make it more effective we'll make it non-lethal like it's just not it's just not a thing it's just not that's what we need we need someone and politically to take a stand on this and I oh, that's what you know you've created this amazing documentary so hopefully that will happen but these politicians I mean we we deal with them all the time and we've always got to have politicians I understand that but it's extremely difficult to work with them sometimes because they don't want to do anything that bad to, you know, to make sure they get the vote for the next election and it's tough. I think the question a lot of politicians, especially when it comes to environmental issues these days, need to ask themselves, just because you legally can doesn't mean you legally should. So the operation of these shark control programs is allowed under the Section 43B clause of the EPBC Act, which allows the continuation of any programs prior to the implementation of the Act prior to 1999 to continue as long as it doesn't expand or intensify or grow in any means. They are allowed to continue without permits or compliance under the EPBC Act, which if these programs were to be examined as per mandated under the EPBC Act, they would not hold massive to today's standards. But because they were in continuation prior to 1999 on the advice and on the permit systems prior to that, that is what with the standard we're allowing to continue. So the question is just because you legally are allowed to work on these programs and get away with it doesn't mean you should. If your program or something that you're doing wouldn't hold the muscle to today's standards, to today's science, to today's data, you should not be doing it. You should have a backbone and say, this doesn't hold muster to what we know today. It doesn't matter that it was allowed to operate 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. Today's standard is what matters. Today's data is what matters. And that is what we should be holding it to. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And and as your film points out, they're actually expanding this shark culling program in Queensland. I've heard you talk about before, Andre. This is taxpayer money funding this ineffective program, killing all these sharks and all these non-target species, and actually probably making our beaches less safe. I'm still looking for a way. How could the politicians of Queensland, New South Wales, still want to get behind this and keep this in place and and expand? This is why. This is why. It's because not obey the protection program or you'd modernise the program. It's a politician protection program. This Keeping this in the water is the low-risk approach, right? You go modernise it and something unfortunate happens, you're the bad guy. You go pull it out of the water and something bad happens, you're the bad guy. Your opposition, political opposition will tear you to pieces, the media will tear you to pieces. This is status quo is the low-risk approach. That's why it's still in the water because it's not there to protect people. It's there to protect politicians. As your film points out, there are a number of alternatives that actually have been shown to be very effective as well. And I'm guessing probably costs less money as well and obviously would kill less uh, species, etc. We costed it out. We literally costed it out. So the Queensland government ordered a report into alternatives. It was done by a, a firm called Cardno. I think they're an engineering or a consulting firm, something like that. They did a very thorough report on all the alternatives that are available. Uh, some are better for some conditions. North Queensland, where you don't have great visibility, but you do have nice, calm water. Barriers work great. Down south, where the surf's big and the water clarity's good, drones might work better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, 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 it talks about all the good alternatives that could be used in the various areas of the Queensland coastline because it is quite diverse. That report was put together. It exists. It's on the minister's desk. It highlights perfect solutions for every area, far better than the current solutions, right? We, because they were sitting on it, we went and costed it out. And when I say we, I mean us, Humane Society, who feature in the film, Australian Marine Conservation Society, who feature in the film, and Sea Shepherd. We, as in the collective, sat down and costed it out beach by beach. We went, right, what does the Cardinal report say is good at Port Douglas? Cool. Spoke to vendors, got quotes, got estimates. We went beach by beach across the 80-plus beaches from Cairns all the way down to Snapper Rocks, and we costed the whole thing out. It runs the government after upfront expenditure. So there's there's a cost to build barriers, like actual shark barriers, and there's a cost to buy a fleet of drones. It's approximately half the cost of their current program, annual operating expense. That is staggering. Unbelievable. (laughs) I feel, I feel as though we could talk to you guys all day, but obviously I want to get you guys back in, on the campaign and driving further change, but we should probably talk about the, the, what's next for you guys. So, And this is probably more your bag, is it, Lauren, the, the, the media campaign. So what's the next actions for you guys? Well, the beautiful thing that's really kind of happening here is this collaboration and partnership between Envoy and the film itself as a tool to drive public awareness and the collaboration we're seeing with Humane Society International, with the Marine Conservation Society Australia, with Sea Shepherd, is that we've got this kind of network now happening where we're all collaborating, where someone can work on someone else, cover someone else's weaknesses and we amplify each other's strengths. So where NGOs are kind of maybe more bound by red tape or have to kind of go through layers of approval, Envoy Film can kind of cut a lot more to the bone and can be a lot more direct. Where we have less experience with maybe 
collaborating on a political scale um, in terms of pitches and briefs ministers, AMCS, HSI have plenty of experience with that. So we're seeing this kind of new evolution, I guess, on the conservation side of this collaboration between documentary outreach and campaigning with the NGOs, with the scientists to kind of drive change collectively and to work as a cohort and across that collaborative space, which I think is going to be the new front for driving change because it really is quite inspirational to work with these incredible people and to bounce these ideas and to kind of balance each other out in this way. So driving forward, it's very much Envoy Charcoal is our main tool for public awareness. But straight from that, we have a massive campaign strategy and it's all broken down into different categories and to different tactics and what is that going to do to amplify this message or how is this going to drive change from this side, whether it's politically, whether it's publicly, whether it's on an education front. There's so many different perspectives and sectors you want to cover and get across because in order to drive change, you have to do it holistically. So that just means a lot of grunt work now as we're kind of building and preparing for once this hits streaming services, we're hitting the ground running. So it's you, how do you cover all these angles? What are the new tactics? What are creative ways to challenge this? Because doing this way, it's obviously hasn't been working. So how do we come about this in a new way? How do we reach people? How do we get the common person involved? And this is where social media has become such this amazing tool to use in the right way is that our network is able to grow infinitely and we're able to reach people and common people from like yesterday with the whale that was spotted off Martin Bay, just sending in footage to let us know what's happening. And you grow this organic network that reaches out and everyone has their own unique network that stems from that, that they can use collaboratively, that people can piece together pieces a lot faster and a lot more easily than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago to drive this kind of national campaign. But it all stems from public awareness, which is what Envoy is the main tool for. The other beauty of it, just to add to that, is is the diversity of approaches and the ways of looking things. And that's that's having Lauren on board and working with the other organizations that has filled a huge gap for me. Like my default is always full attack mode, right? Like, <laughs> like I, I get so round up and so frustrated by this. Like, yeah working with these other people with these other approaches and even, you know, Lauren's a diplomatic family background. It helps a lot to not just have me wanting to, you know, go at everyone at at 100 miles an hour. It's like maybe (laughs) this is a smarter way to go about things. That's been really, really cool. And then, yeah, the film is just the tool to bring awareness and let everyone do their thing. Yeah, the number of times Andre sent me a rant and going, I want to post this. And I've had to say, let's sit on this um, and talk about it. Let's talk it through and maybe rest on it a little bit. I, I think we need Lauren on our team, Jeremy, because uh, <laughs> Jeremy and me are a thousand miles an hour and we rant like you would not believe. Really? Maybe oh, you yeah. would, I don't know. But uh, we, we need a filter. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say on that message, like with social media, everyone kind of, to a certain extent, it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't matter how cool your messaging is or the visual effects that you have or whatever. It's, you have to be able to analyze and look at these kind of messaging tactics holistically and from different perspectives. At least what I've um, gone into my experience trying to do this, my own advocacy work and with Envoy is that unless you can, you can approach the same problem from different perspectives and align people from different backgrounds as to why they should think this way or to consider this different perspective in a way that doesn't attack people and their own ideals, but encourages them to question why from their own perspective that is the key that a lot of people are missing a lot of people particularly some even some of our own followers go straight for the attack and i every time that happens i just sit back and go oh no because that doesn't gonna 
any kind of support. That doesn't encourage anyone to reconsider. I call Andre the king of the flip because the number of times we had people who would send us messages just being so aggressive and attacking us and going, how dare I? His masterful way of just getting them to then actually reconsider and look at this from from their facts and changing their whole mindset is beautiful. It's just, it's a skill. It is an honest to God, a real skill. That, that's learned behavior. That, that in the past, that mess, they would have got to go air yourself, <laughs> go something yourself. Um, what have you done, you hypocrite, go away in the past? But now I take a breath and I go, okay, I reckon I can win this person over. And usually it works weirdly. So, yeah, I guess people are receptive to a different way of thinking sometimes. But what you do see is a lot, I'm talking from like higher up, because you know, you've got your top down, bottom up approaches to this kind of messaging. What you do see from the top down perspective, you see a lot of criticism in public, but being praised in private. So it's that kind of how do you balance that? Well, one frustration whenever that happens, going, you are in this position of power. How can you say, go up against this or not support this? publicly but in private you're more than happy to be like good work keep up keep up what you're doing you've got to kind of be able to balance that nuance and at least me personally I grew up in Canberra I grew up around the ambassadors and their children's and the diplomatic circles and very much exposed to that kind of nuanced language from a very very young age but how do you come about this in a way that's still assertive that's still strong because time is ticking now you know with climate change with all these environmental issues we are operating on a very very short time scale so how do you balance when you're in the know you know um what's that uh very profound but (laughs) it's we've got such a short time frame to actually act meaningfully on so many issues so that kind of aids the frustration so many scientists and activists uh have is because we only have so long to actually change people's perspectives, to change their awareness. But the way in which you go about that is so crucial and so lacking for a lot of people. I mean, I'm currently studying postgraduate law at the moment to try and understand the legal perspective and how this works and the gaps in the legal frameworks. And the communication between science and law and law and society is riddled with holes. And the people who can bridge that and speak those two different languages, three different languages, really, and still be able to communicate and engage with the average person who doesn't want to read about data, who doesn't want to go looking into things themselves. How do you engage them in a way that not only gets them interested in your topic, angry about the topic, but then angry in a proactive way to actually want to do something themselves to make a difference? And that all has to be built upon in a very different way depending on who you're talking to and, and it's hard because you know and we, we've been through this people get depressed environmental depression is huge and if you start you know you're always producing particularly in our sort of line of work you know plastic and straws up to noses etc people just shut off that balance of trying to shock them but then get them into action to do something is is, is what you guys have achieved really in, in this documentary Exactly. This is exactly what this film has achieved. It's a, a beautiful mix of science, shock, beauty, and a call to, to action. And I guess, uh, I guess the final thing I wanted to ask you guys before we wrap up is you're going to get a whole bunch of people motivated to actually do something now. So what is the key thing that you are sort of recommending to the Joe public to do? So what, how, how, they, how can they get involved and drive change in this space? First things first, sign our petitions because people actually severely underestimate the impact that those kind of mass numbers can have. I think currently our petition is something at 76,000, I think, on change.org. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So pushing for that, we can take those kind of petitions to 
we have uh, with senators that are uh, being part of inquiry willing to take that to table that in parliament to actually email your ministers you have to people you hear these stories of what kind of sign petitions email your ministers people roll their eyes but i cannot stress enough how important those individual actions are to begin with and we're now in a very interesting space with covid with protests are so important to driving change but how do we conduct them safely and in certain areas like Canberra or Sydney can't do them at all under current standards so navigating this kind of new area we're in with having to do things remotely from a distance keeping things safe for everyone in public health is a completely new battlefield that people are learning to navigate so it's all a developing process but sign the petition email ministers we have emails written up for you where you just have to type in your name and your postcode and we will send off a, an email to your relevant minister based on your postcode to get this happening. Join in when we have campaigns coming up for dialing campaigns to minister's office. Join in, flood the ministers with calls about this issue. It's about keeping pressure and keeping awareness on in the long term to drive change. Everything we're currently doing that Lauren just described is at envoyfilm.com.au forward slash act now. And then obviously follow us on socials as well because there is more reactive stuff that comes up, such as Sunday's protest that really gained traction and spread the word via social media. So socials, envoyfilm.com.au forward slash act now. And yeah, you'd be part of part of changing this because I firmly believe we have the, the public will and the public sentiment to do so. And we will even more so once, uh, you know, a few million extra people in the Australian general public have seen it. So, yeah, that's, that's what I'd encourage you to do. Yeah, it's just, I mean, we have an amazing job to interview people and we have so much fun doing it, but particularly you guys, it's a really, really great podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You guys are both legends and what the work you're doing is just remarkable. All the stuff that, that we've spoken about will be in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, you can go on. And, and support these guys. But um, I just want to say thank you personally. Yeah, what a wonderful thing you guys are doing. No, excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I always wish these things would go longer because I could talk about this all day, but we've got to, <laughs> we've got to remember that maybe the, the listener doesn't want to hear about it all day. And obviously with that extra time, the listener can go jump on the website as well. So I certainly encourage everyone to do that on viofilm.com.au. But look, again, just to reiterate what Jeremy said, thank you so much for giving up your time today. It's been a wonderful chat. I, I honestly think the documentary is spectacular and it will be a real key catalyst for change in this space so in that regard congratulations to both of you and obviously andre this has been your baby for two years or so hats off keep it up mate keep it up spectacular but again thanks for your time today guys and i wish you all the best in the future and if there's any way we can help you please let us know thank you very very kind words thank you so much pleasure pleasure to chat this is just the beginning guys yeah Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.